Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. And without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome a gentleman I have been a fan of for literally decades, the man, the father of what is, uh, without a doubt, for my money, the greatest novelty song of all time and might be the greatest song of all time, the great Joe Dolce. Joe, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I'm a huge fan, in case you couldn't tell. Great to help me speaking to you. <laughs> actually, uh, you know, I'm so honored that you'd say that. I'm actually a, not the father. I, I'd call myself the godmother, maybe. <laughs> well, so tell tell us about it. Tell me um, how that that song came to be, and uh, what your what your role was, and how you put it together, and how it came to the masses. God knows, you know, it's so long ago. You know, I mean, God, I was a young man then. Uh, you know, I, I was raised in an Italian family, a very Sicilian, Calabrian roots. And, uh, and you know, I had moved to Australia, so I'd been away from home for almost eight years. I was getting really homesick. So one day I just thought of, I remembered uh, some of those dinners around uh, the family where everyone talked in broken English. And I, I just thought of all these phrases they used to say. And I started writing them down. And I didn't think it was going to turn into a song. But then one night at uh, some cabaret, I got up impromptu and just started making it up. And then and then it worked out into a song. It didn't have any sing-along, of course. Uh, it was just just a bunch of words. And then one mm. night, um, I did a midnight show somewhere, and everyone was really drunk. I mean, they were really <laughs> off their faces. They were making noises and yelling. And when I said the first hey in the song, like, what's the matter, you hey? They wouldn't shut up. They kept saying hey through the rest of the song. <laughs> You know, it's funny. So I thought, wait a minute, this is a great way to shut these people up. <laughs> I'm just put that in. <laughs> Get them to do that. <laughs> it, it is funny. Uh, first of all, that's incredible that uh, so many of the operative lyrics that are now so memorable were put in in part by necessity to shut people up. But, um, you know, you talk about your Italian relatives. When you say shut up or you face in that song, I feel uh, it's you sound almost exactly like my Neapolitan grandfather sounded when he was reprimanding me as a child. Where where in Italy was your family from? Well, my my grandparents on my mother's uh, father's side came from um, Italy. And my father's side came from Calabria. But my both of my parents were born in America, so it's this second generation. Sure, same, I remember same. my great yeah, great grandparents as well. They were alive. Uh, you know, they had this huge market garden in there, you know, they used to raise their own make their own wine, raise chickens and I mean, you know, they never spoke English. And, I mean, I didn't know who they were. you know, I hardly could communicate with them. They were so old. But, you know, I mean, it was there, you know, in my background. I, I remember it. But they were still able to figure out how to tell you to shut up. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. They would, yeah, you know, in other words, we actually, you know, uh, I actually wrote this with a lot of Italian swear words. Uh, I won't mention them here. I don't know if you're allowed to say things like that. On but um, I started that way, and then I realized I had to tone it down a bit. So then I um, 
was looking for English equivalent. So you, you know, there's so much that I want to cover with you, but why did you move to Australia? I know you were born in Ohio, grew up, uh, spent the early formative years of your life in Ohio. How did you end up in Australia? Well, I, uh, I was always a bit of a, you know, black sheep of the family. And you know, I, I always had, lo- I had long hair when the Beatles came out and that embarrassed my parents, you know, and, uh, I don't know. I just, uh, I just thought differently out of the box a bit, you know, and, um, well, and then the, the big mistake my parents made was sending me off to college in Ohio at Ohio university, which means I had to live away from home. So that was an error because then once I got there, I started making friends and, uh, learning about other ways of living and uh you know i've got this can i read this short little poem please see that please my parents pronounced my name dolts right so this poem will tell you and when i got to college i met a italian teacher who told me i should change it to it's you know, so here's the poem it's called a kid lead ivy too we were dolts pronounced dolts to blend in there with the non-italians in our small ohio town there's he dolts and dozy dolts and little lambsy divy the classmates used to tease me. But at college I became Dolce, precisely in order to blend out. <laughs> Infrequent time travel trips to visit my family devolved me occasionally back to Dolts for wrinkle free camouflage. I, I think that's uh, that's a, a pretty great explanation in poetic form of uh, of the pronunciation of your name from Dolce to to Dolce. I love it. Um, you know, I, I know I know some folks like you've done so much, uh, not only in poetry, not only in music, but in photography uh, and in a lot of other different fields. And I'd like to touch upon as mem- as many of them as we can. But I have to think that because that song became such a huge hit, number one, not just in one country, but in 15, performed in many different languages, uh, covers by everybody. Do, do you, I have to think that every day of your life, somebody gets tired, of, uh, somebody asks you about it, and I have to wonder, do you ever get tired of answering questions about it? Are you almost at the point where you think, all right, enough already? Well, it depends on, on, on the intelligence of the person asking the question. <laughs> I mean, you know, on Facebook, a lot of people will make a comment like, ah, shut up, you face what's the matter to you? And to me, I just delete those because I'm going, oh, no, what? There's no brains in that. But the thing is, I'm proud of the song, and, and I, I think it's a, it's gone way beyond becoming a, a pop song into something that, uh, you know, I mean, who would have thought that it could appeal to people in different countries? I mean, to me, it was just a funny thing, you know, but... You know, now I see it was a kind of, especially in Australia, we had a very repressive thing about immigrants here, not like America. In America, we had Frank Sinatra and a lot of Italian politicians. and But here, Italians were pretty much relegated to running fruit shops, you know. So here it was very social, almost political to come out and say things like that in public. Um, it's probably why it went to number one here and didn't quite go to number one in America because, um, I mean, it should have gone to number one in America. It's so like... Uh, I think about 3 million copies in America. And I remember one of the producers over there told me, you only need 900,000 copies in America to get a number one hit. So there's some reason why Hmm. they won't let it go to number one. And then we we figured out that a lot of the southern states wasn't reporting 
their sales because they didn't want to be associated with what they considered a novelty song. Wow. Uh, it was number one in L.A. and number one in New York at the same time. It was really a, tearing it up. But there was this whole center of America that were, they were really sort of controlled more by their sponsors, you know, and they wanted to keep their sponsorship and they didn't want to be pigeonholed as a novelty you know, so they they play the song because people would ringing in, right? And they'd be selling records, but they wouldn't report it to the charts. So we didn't get the numbers to make it go up at the Billboard charts number one. But we sold like four million copies. It was like four times the amount to get a number one hit. Well, so that, really, really, yeah. That's what. That's what. Well, you you will be pleased to know that when this station was a music station back in 1981, that was the. 34th most played song on this station that year. So we were playing it, even if they weren't playing it in Arkansas and uh, and Mississippi. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so needless to say, it, it sounds like you never expected this to be nearly the kind of monstrous hit that it was. It's a funny question because, you know, you know, because artists are so full of ego, they always think everything they do is, should be, you know, genius, right? But after, you know, years and years and years of finding out that's not the case, you really don't really take it that seriously. You mm. think, oh, this is great. People should love that. But, you know, they usually don't. But then when this, when the phone started ringing, that was the main difference. Instead of me ringing other people, people started ringing me. And I was answering the phone all the time about it. And then I had to get management. I had to get publishers. Wow. You know, I really had to get serious. <laughs> Oh, no, I, I can imagine. Do you think part of the appeal of that song uh, is not just that it's catchy, not just that it's fun, not just that it's easy to memorize the lyrics to, but in the case, in my own case, it reminds me so much of my grandfather. It plays sort of to people's sense of nostalgia. Do you think that's part of the appeal? Of course, yeah, you're you're dead on with that, spot on right. Um, the other thing is, from writing poetry, i lately for the last 10 years I've, i'm really good at copying structures you know when, when i want to write a, a a poem like i'll copy uh do not go gentle into the night by dylan thomas which is called a villanelle and i can write those almost automatically i understand structures and in music even though i played pop music and i was a virtuoso blues harp player and lead guitarist for years and years I understood structures, and I could see there was a structure like That's Amore and a lot of Louis Prima songs. And, and when I was in that mood of just having a good time and thinking of Italians, I was able to copy a structure uh, like That's Amore that actually would have been authentic back in those days. I mean, you could see Dean Martin singing this, you know what I mean? It's like uh, I, I got it right, you know, and uh, and people related to it like, oh, wait a minute, this this sounds like something from back in the 50s or something, you know? Um, yeah, that's why I think it's 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 stuck in there with people and it's covered a lot because there's an awful lot of people all across the the musical spectrum that relate to this song. It's almost like something from the days of Frank Sinatra sure, and Tony absolutely. Bennett. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, my last question about this song, and I want to talk about everything else that you're up to now okay. and have been for the last 40 years. You mentioned the fact that it's been covered a lot. Not only has it been covered by great artists like Lou Monty, it's been covered in multiple language, inclu languages, including in Russian, including in uh, yep. uh, in Aboriginal. But you, it's become <laughs> such a part of the pop culture that even iconic actors like Samuel L. Jackson have been asked to recite the song when they go on certain talk shows. What's the matter, you? Hey! You got no respect? What do you think you do? Why are you looking so sad? 
this is not so bad. It's a nicer place. <laughs> I shut up on your face. Oh, if you had to pick, Joe, uh, what would you say the be- best or the most entertaining cover of that song happens to be? Which version? Well, you know, coincidentally, that one is it. You know, because um, <laughs> you can listen to that over and over and over again, and you never get tired of it. Sam L. Jackson, he's got some way of putting joy into it, you know, and it, it doesn't really, if you listen to even my version more than once, you get sick of it because, you know, it's a song, right? But he's, he's doing it like a, a monologue <laughs> and uh, it's a brilliant version. The other versions I like, there was an Italian version done by uh, Franco and Ingrazia, who are these, they've done over 150 Italian films. They're like the, uh, the Laurel and Hardy of Italy, you know, and when they did it and they're really old guys, they both died now. I was so honored because I'd never heard of them. But then when I realized their past I, and I heard their version in Sicilian dialect, absolutely amazing. And then lately, you know, I don't know if you know, but Steve Carell of uh, the morning show did a version of it during the morning show segment, which uh, was just like last year. And uh, he did the whole thing. He did a verse and a chorus. <laughs> That's wild. You know, I read that he had done that, but I, I haven't seen it yet, though. Uh, but uh, I think it's great that it's uh, helped a whole new generation of people rediscover the song. You know, the first song that you really had a big hit with when you went to Australia was a song about the treatment of Vietnamese refugees, totally different in style to this song and a lot of other songs that American audiences might know you from. The song Pizza Pizza, uh, the song about uh, being happy. Did you envision using most of your music as being uh, something that would send a message, or did you, or, or was this sort of a one-off that uh, that you had a message with this song, but a lot of your subsequent work you envisioned as being just for entertainer entertainment's sake? Well, you know, it, it's um, it has to do with a lot of artists. They, they find a market really quickly and an audience, and they they pretty much focus on that audience, and you know. I've been the kind of person that's never really had a following. You know, I've always been a bit, like I said, even with my family, I was a bit of a black sheep. And even in music, because I can copy structures, I understand blues, I understand country, uh, this, this the old Italian kind of stuff. Whatever strikes me as being interesting at the time, I can, I want to write something like that, you know, and I don't really care if the people that thought I was a great blues harp understand Shout Up Your Face. It doesn't really matter to me. I'm not trying to sell sell that old audience on the new thing. What I'm trying to do is keep moving forward in a straight direction. I mean, Sylvester Stallone said once, Stallone said once, it doesn't matter if you get hit in a fight. It matters if you keep going forward. Mm. You, know, you keep moving forward. So that's my strategy with music. It's, it's you know, I'm getting hit all the time. People are saying, well, you know, it's a novelty song or, you know, you're really just a blues harmonica player. Why are you doing that? It's like that's not at all what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about how can I create something creative with the inspiration I've got today. You know, and that both people song that affected me because nobody was paying any attention to it. I said, I can write a protest song. You know, these have been done before. Bob Dylan's done it. Many people have done it. I can do it. And, you know, no one wanted to know about it except the Vietnamese. And the Vietnamese loved it. And uh, I gave all the records away to the Vietnamese community. I was in invited to perform at festivals, Vietnamese festivals, and people invited me over for dinner. You know, it was like I made a lot of friends in the Vietnamese community, but the Australians didn't really want to know. Now, if we go back before Shut Up Your Face, the last thing that I'd done that was made any kind of impact was a song called My Home Ain't in the Hall of Fame. 
And that was recorded by a guy named Jonathan Edwards, who had a big number one hit in America called Sunshine. John and I used to be in a band together when I was we were in college. And uh, it was a great band, a very psychedelic band. And we went our separate ways. And I used to send him songs. One day he uh, he recorded that. And uh, and then from then on, it became recorded by a lot of Southern country acts, including Robert Earl Keane Jr. and uh, J.D. Crow in the New South. I mean, it was like it was like the most successful song I'd written. And then when Shut Up Face come along, that that was that transcended. But I, it's funny thing is, I went to do a um, a uh, folk festival in Austin, Texas, and I got up um, to sing my set, and there were all these old country guys on the set with me, all wearing these old white country hats. And when I sang uh, my home in all fame, they were blown away. They'd never heard of Shut Up Your Face. <laughs> but they all knew this wow. song. Uh, I mean, th- that's what's so amazing about you is that you've been able to be so many different things to so many different people. Many people may not know that you co-wrote the song Intimacy, which is on the Terminator soundtrack, a totally different type of music than some of the other music that we've been talking about. But, um, and, and again, I'm sorry to go on and on so long about Shut Up Are You Face, but um, no, tell, me, okay. I don't mind. tell me about your work as a a poet. Um, only have a minute or so left, but do you, do you view that largely as an extension of your work as a musician and a lyricist? And uh, why has that been so much of your focus the last uh, last decade or so, as opposed to uh, performing music? I think what happened was um, before Shut Up Your Face, when I was performing with Jonathan Edwards, we used to do a lot of songs uh, by Leonard Cohen and Dylan and the Birds and all these fantastic 70 groups. And I always had this love for a deep lyric, you know, lyrics that actually said something. So even though I went on a long kind of journey to get back to it, I really wanted to get back to the state where I was actually writing really strong words, you know, for my songs. So I think I became a poet because I started writing better lyrics. And uh, and then I decided I'm going to I'm going to write poetry that gets published on its own right. And then I'm going to write lyrics that get published as poems without people ever hearing the songs. And if I can do that then I can prove to myself that I've written songs that have a really strong lyrical sense that pretty much stand on their own as, as serious writing. Right. And that, that's pretty much what has been my, my goal with, with all this stuff. Um, I think I've had about 50 uh, song lyrics published as poems by editors who've never heard the song. <laughs> so, I mean, what better? Uh, uh, no, it's outstanding. I mean, you've led so many different lives as a photographer, as a musician, as a lyricist. Um, if somebody wants to go into poetry and let their creative juices flow a little bit, and but they don't really know where to begin, would you advise them to do something like copy the structure of a Dylan Thomas poem or a poet they do enjoy until their own uh, voice starts to come out in those poems? Yes, you know, and people are afraid to copy. But you know, Salvador Dali, the great painter, once said this great. I, these, I keep these things uh, near me because they remind me when I get confused. He said, "Anyone who's afraid to imitate will create nothing." Mm. Mm. What that means is that you have to start by surrendering to a to someone who's a master. It's like an apprenticeship. You surrender to a structure or to a person who knows how to write something, and then after a while. You find another master, you surrender to them. And then when you get four or five of them under your belt, you'll notice that the way you surrender changes. It's actually developing your own style. You're not quite copying him the way you did when you didn't have the other influences. So 
you get 10 or 20 of these influences, and when you get really good at it, you can get hundreds, right? You then develop a really unique voice, the way you integrate all this stuff together. Even though you're, you may be copying in your head, no one can see that. John Lennon believed that he was, you know, he was copying Chuck Berry and the Everly Brothers. We're uh, way, way out of time. Uh, Joe Dolce, if you want to comment on any portion of our interview, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. If you want to comment. Uh, and, you know, I think he's right. All my best stuff is stolen from everybody else. So <laughs> that makes sense.